welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends on social media. To keep up with the latest guests and announcements, be sure to follow us at The Art Salon on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit the support section on the Anchor website where you can contribute to the podcast once or by setting up recurring donations. I'm really excited for today's guest because he represents the first departure from the small sphere of influence of the music industry. Jose Maria Barrero is currently Assistant Professor of Finance at the Instituto Tecnológico Autónomo de México in the Business School. This is one of the leading higher education institutions of Mexico. I met Jose Maria in fourth grade back in Colombia. At the time, he was the class valedictorian. This is what we would go on to perceive at Mass from kindergarten to 12th grade. In the 14 years at school, his spot at the top of the class never changed. This feat he would repeat at the University of Pennsylvania and later at Stanford. What I once mistook for a bookish personality, I came to accept with time as one of the biggest examples of perseverance and tenacity. In the episode, we discuss one of Jose's latest achievements, his paper, COVID-19 is also reallocation shock, which appeared on July 2020 and was written with Nick Bloom and Stephen J. Davis. The paper dealing with precisely that, reallocation shock caused by the pandemic, was mentioned in the Washington Post, Marketplace, The Economist 1, The Economist 2, Forbes, The New York Times, Bloomberg, MNI, and The Economist 3 Special Report. He has a sleuth of upcoming articles, which I hope will get published soon. And he's starting a promising career that I will look at with glee. I'm an incredibly lucky individual who has been blessed with a group of five friends, which despite the nearly two decades of growth, our diverging professions, and the sprawling distances between our homes, has remained as close as when we met. These five people are my superiors in every shape and form. They are more intelligent, more prosperous, more fascinating, and infinitely wiser than I. It is due to this imbalance that I have grown. I would recommend to anyone listening that you surround yourself with people infinitely better than yourself. It is in the presence of those who know more than yourself that growth is possible. I have always sought to be surrounded by people outside my area of expertise. The insights to be gained by people with other sensibilities and professions can vastly improve one's own view of the world. In the subject of the arts, one salient thing was sadly left out from this conversation. Briefly after I ended the recording, we continued talking about the changes the arts would be facing in the 21st century, which has begun its ascent. Jose said, I can understand why the third trumpet in an orchestra is seeing this situation and is paralyzed and says, well, I guess I'll just wait it out and see what happens. But what the fuck are the CEOs thinking? At this point, they should be basically throwing shit at the walls to see what sticks. I can only answer, I'm not sure what they're thinking but I am sure that people who were too afraid to dip their toe in the water before will not jump in now. Without further ado, I leave you with one of my best friends, Jose Maria Barrero. I hope you gained some insight from this. I certainly did. And I hope you find this conversation away from music, but related to the arts, interesting. Okay, well, people listening to this are not going to know who you are, except like our friends that um, uh, know us. Um, but I think it was cool. It's cool. Like part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is like expand the scope of the conversations that people in our immediate orbits are listening to. 
So like, I hope there's podcasts in economics that people are doing a similar thing because I think like the cross-pollination of thoughts is super interesting, which is something you and I are used to because we have like a group of five friends that do very divergent things that we're constantly in conversation with. And I'm always going like, ah, uh, like for things that I didn't, things in my own field, talking to somebody like JP, for example, who's an engineer, puts things into perspective for me. So anyway, uh, why don't you tell everyone what you do and, you know, where you're, where you're working, et cetera. Okay, great. So I'm a professor of finance at Instituto Tecnológico Autónomo de México, also known as ITAM, uh, which is kind of a top ranked Institute of Technology in Mexico. And, and so basically what I, I, I split my time between two things. So part of it is I, I teach undergraduates. And so I teach kind of a core corporate finance class. How do you make uh, decisions about how to invest as a corporation, raise debt, equity, that sort of thing. Um, but then kind of actually the majority of my time and kind of what I was trained to do is, is to conduct academic research. And, and so in particular, I focus on so I, I recently changed my billing on my website to say that I'm, a, I'm an applied economist with interests in macroeconomics and finance and labor slash personnel economics. So kind of basically bare, very broad interests in, in terms of economics of organizations and how firms make, make decisions. Um, and and so, so to give you an idea, in my dissertation, so I graduated from Stanford Economics with a PhD a couple of years ago, and I and my dissertation talked about basically how firm managers make decisions under uncertainty. And so the idea is, is you I don't know you own a firm, you make some sales, and you need to forecast those sales in the future to know how much you want to invest in new capital, how many people you want to hire, that sort of thing. And and so most of us can kind of more or less have an intuitive idea of how how we forecast these things, uh, but it's very hard to create kind of economic models and, and, and collect economic data about this. So I worked with several other people. Uh, so for example, with my advisor and with a group at the Atlanta Fed who really are, are, are kind of doing a lot of the legwork here, um, running a survey that asked firms, okay, how much do you think your sales are gonna grow over the next year? But instead of asking them for a single number, kind of a single point forecast, we asked them, for five different scenarios. So kind of what do you think is gonna happen in the worst, worst case, bad case, middle case, high and highest scenario, and give, then give me a probability for each scenario. And so, so my dissertation, what I did was is I took this data and I basically figured out where, kind of where these people's expectations are going wrong and what decisions they're doing. Well, <clears throat> obviously that seems like a topic that then plays really well into what happened a year ago because everyone's now playing in uncertain fields in every field of study pretty much except medicine because they're getting huge investments as usual but but they're also they're also in, in really uncertain terms because i think at in march april at the beginning of the pandemic it wasn't clear how hospitals exactly should respond to kind of the the surge of of sick people that they were receiving. And so one of the things that has happened over the past nine, 10 months is, is they've learned how to do this. But kind of in March, they didn't know exactly how to treat people. They didn't know how many of them were gonna need oxygen and how many were gonna need ventilators. And, and so these sorts of forecasts are, are also applicable there. 
Yeah. And then you wrote a paper not that recently anymore. What was it, like six months ago? Yeah. So this was kind of in the late spring, early summer. Um, basically, and so, so the title of the paper. and, and Sorry, paper. I'm going to interrupt for a second. I, the reason I'm bringing up this paper is because, so I'll just give you a little background of what's happening in the music industry, which I'm sure you can uh, predict evidently what's going on. Uh, the entertainment industry is somewhat surviving, but not really, right? Because concerts are gone, even in large, especially in large venues. But then you have like the cultural institutions like museums and symphony orchestras that are completely fucked because they have had models that are already have been outdated for years that are heavily reliant on donation formats, but not on actually sustainable business. And there's no end in sight as to when they can resume what they do. So there's like, and they're also not, proposing anything new. So I think why I find your paper interesting is twofold. First, there's a lot of trained musicians that are going to be forced to leave that profession, whether they know it or not right now, which is an interesting part of your paper. But the other interesting part of your paper is, and maybe it's not in your paper, but that might be linked to it. I think that what I got from it is that organizations themselves are also going to have to cope and find emerging markets if they want, like an emerging way of doing things if they want to survive in the new era, essentially. And it's not a clear path, what that looks like. So talk talk to me about that paper. Yeah, so absolutely. So so the title of the paper, and, and, and I, I think it, your your example with the entertainment industry is, is, a, is a very good example. So so I, that, it's not usually the example I think about, but it's, it's very, it's, it fits perfectly. The title of the paper is COVID-19 is also a reallocation shock. And so also because we, we all know it's a very negative hit on the economy. Uh, but it, what we argue is that it's, it's a shock that is kind of forcing the economy to change the way it does things. Uh, and so as we know, kind of there are certain sectors like arts and entertainment also, well, the, kind of the, the most often cited are bars and restaurants that are getting hammered because well, there are government orders kind of saying this isn't safe, people shouldn't do this, and kind of people also staying away from them because they don't feel safe. Doing and, and so what we argue is, is that apart from that, there's also kind of other forms of business making that, that have expanded a lot uh, over the past year. And so kind of you look even very early on in the pandemic, like in April, so where we basically got the idea uh, to, to write this paper, was from a Wall Street Journal article that said this crisis is creating the biggest reallocation of jobs since the Second World War. And kind of the examples that they cited were that as the economy was losing, I think, 20 million jobs during the US economy during, during the spring, there were companies like Walmart and Amazon that were hiring hundreds of thousands of workers at the same time. And, and so this is, this, and this is the reallocation that, that, that I think we're interested in which is basically, yeah, so you can't go to this, you don't really wanna go, go to the store anymore. You don't really wanna to go to restaurants anymore. But then what do you do? You start ordering from Amazon, you start ordering from Walmart, um, you start, yeah, all these Instacart sort of businesses um, kind of have a clear shift in demand in their favor. And there's a lot of kind of job creation opportunities in, in those industries. I mean, 
this is all kind of happening at the same time that, that obviously the economy is, is, is suffering a massive negative hit. And so kind of what's nice about our paper is that we can tell that our argument is sort of, yeah, we all know that kind of bars and restaurants and, and the entertainment industry for that matter are, doing, are not doing well and there are other sectors that are doing well. Um, but kind of what we really want people to think is that even within these industries, there's ways in which you can change the way you do things in order to respond to the shock and so create jobs in, in that, that do different things and, and, and firms that do different things. And, and so this is why I think that the Walmart and Amazon example is really nice because it's, okay, so you don't wanna to go to the store anymore, but you're still, you're still going to retailers. It's just a different way of doing retail. And, and so jobs are going to go down at, for example, potentially physical Walmart stores, but up at their fulfillment centers. I don't know if they operate like this, but this is kind of the idea of, of what's going on. And I think something similar can happen in the entertainment industry um, to some extent. So, I mean, I've, I don't know how successful this is commercially, but I, I, I know that there's been lots of music groups, for example, that have done kind of live concerts over the internet, which one or two years ago were absolutely uh, I mean, unthinkable that anybody would log on to that if you can go to the real thing. Nowadays, I, mean, I don't know if this is commercially viable again, but, but, but people, you can, you can think of creative ways of, of changing your business model to some extent. I think to, to your point, uh, the pop world and the jazz world are better poised to join right. that because independent voices have been really nurtured there for the past uh, 50 years and in the case of jazz 100 years so like the whole point is that you're different from somebody else where the industry's fucked is the orchestras because they're all uh they went from being heterogeneous in the 60s to very homogeneous in sound and in what they do like programming etc so like the one who was super ahead of the curve was the berlin philharmonic that has had the digital concert hall for 10 years or more now 15 maybe but like, it's not clear for me as a consumer that I should subscribe to the Berlin Phil and the LA Philharmonic because they offer essentially the same thing. So it's more like they're ahead of the curve. But beyond that, like you said something about, uh, well, your paper talks about changing trends in markets, which also means that some people are going to be forced to find new careers, right? Um. Do you, well, talk about that first and then I have a separate question. Yeah, so I think we don't, so to be totally clear, kind of the evidence that we have in the paper is evidence that basically jobs are moving from some firms to others. But kind of, we see this all from the perspective of the firms because this is based on surveys of firms. And so we see which of them are hiring more people and which of them are laying people off. We don't really see kind of individual people and, and exactly what they do. So I, I don't know the magnitude of how much people are actually gonna have to change career. And, and, and to give you an, an idea, it's, it's not clear to me, for example, if you're a restaurant that used to have, where, that used to have a bunch of waiters and, and kind of staff used to, that, that you used to, to fulfill customers' orders on, on site, whether really it's kind of such a big adjustment for those sorts of workers to then become kind of delivery 
or or adjust to doing tasks that 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 are that are well suited to for delivery and takeout. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sure there's 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 other examples that you can think of where where the where the contrast is going to be more striking, but but so so what I'm trying to say is I don't have any direct evidence of this. Right. Uh, but then then let's theorize a little bit. It, I agree with you that like menial labor translates very easily. Like if you're a you know a bagging clerk at a local supermarket, and you then go to uh, a large chain supermarket, you can still be a bagger, right? My question is more, and this is another thing that you and I have exchanged uh, economist articles that I always ask you to send me, is <clears throat> uh, the over-education, particularly in America, has created a class system, which is very interesting, of over-prepared people who obviously think that they deserve a higher position in the marketplace. So like if you trained to be, I don't know, a school administrator, you don't want to be a bag clerk at Vons, right? Or at, at a large supermarket store. So you that, don't want to be a teacher for that matter. Or you don't want to be a teacher for that matter. So the, the question becomes, does do the do do all of us that are overtrained also have to consider ourselves pieces in that chessboard of shifting um, markets? Like like when do you cut and run is kind of the question. So that's a good question. I, again, I, I don't have a lot of evidence on this, but my, my sense is that this crisis has really not affected people with white collar jobs very much. And because these white collar jobs are the ones that can very easily be adaptable to be done from home. Those are the sorts of firms that, that white collar workers tend to work at are, are the sorts of firms that, that can, can. Yeah. I, I actually of. saw a wall street journal thing. I think it was wall street journal that said like people making 50,000 and up have barely been fired, but like it's the menial income or the median median income of like 30,000, 25,000 that have been the most affected. Yeah, so that makes total sense to me. And so, I mean, it depends on what, so I, I guess going back to your question, it, it kind of depends on what you mean by being over-prepared. Over um, because I don't know, if you have a college degree and you somehow didn't find a good job and you were bagging groceries at some grocery store, then you, you'll probably be caught up in, in a lot of these gyrations that the economy is going through. But if you were, if you had an, an administrative associate job, for example, in an, at an office, it's not clear that, that, that the, this crisis is, is particularly making things worse for you. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it depends on, it, it, it partly depends on how much overprepared you are, um, I guess. But that is a big question in 2020 because isn't the trend trending towards like hyper prepared people like isn't the the ratio of phds around the world in every field just ridiculous compared to what it was back in the 1970s 80s and 90s so that is right mm. but it's not obvious to me that that that's really that big of an issue and and so what i'm what i'm trying to say is 
is there's kind of studies and some by my advisor, for example, in the past couple of years saying that kind of basically ideas are getting harder to find. And so having a lot of PhDs around might, it's not clear that that's, that that's really a problem if we actually need these highly prepared people to kind of work harder at, at improving stuff. So, so to give you an idea, so Moore's law, this idea that kind of the capacity of computer chips doubles every 18 months or so. So that's been constant for decades now. But what kind, what kind, what's behind that is you need a lot more research inputs in order to keep this constant. Over, and then so over time, kind of the amount of research that has gone into, into, into computer chips has increased exponentially while kind of in order to maintain this relationship. So, so at the PhD level, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that, that people are overprepared. Kind of where I worry, and, and, or at least where economists worry, is there's a lot of people, especially in the US, who are getting a lot of student debt. And, and mo mainly this is from kind of not, not very high value added for-profit colleges. And those are the ones that I would be worried about. But these are not kind of, these are largely speaking, not, a, not PhDs. These are more kind of somebody who spent a lot of money at a for-profit college for a college degree, but then doesn't really translate into any useful skills for the labor market. I, I would add to that, that like that second part that you just said, the for-profit thing, I mean, that's a racket, but it's also sort of a racket that careers have uh, been accepted into like very prominent institutions that are also a racket. I mean, like there's people getting like doctorate degrees and master's degrees and things that like you should barely be able to get an undergrad degree in. So like um, music is a perfect example, actually. Like a PhD in music is pretty good. The people that study like ethnomusicology or music theory or composers makes perfect sense. You're delving into something to create original research and you're probably going to do that for the rest of your life. Great. But then they created something called the DMA, Doctorate in Musical Arts, which is like you come back and you practice real hard and then you'll you'll be great, which is the opposite of what the type of candidate you want to attract because PhDs attract people that could be in the labor force and you attract them in to be researchers to then join academia or to be at the height of the labor force. But it, it, the DMA, for example, ends up churning out a lot of people who didn't cut it in the professional world because it's hard and very competitive, who then find refu like refuge in the academy. You know, like they come back and they're like, it's their safe space. And that's not really creating a more competent person during those four years because the competent people got a job when they were 18, you know, the super competent. So um, there's fields like music, but I'm thinking of other fields that are even worse, like some of the sociology fields or, you know, gender studies. Like, do you need a doctorate in gender studies? Probably not. Like a lot of that research that's being generated isn't really about gender studies, not to get into that whole canon of worms. But you see what I mean? Like, I think that Apart from the racket of for-profit, I think that universities have also started promoting fields into higher degrees that probably don't merit it. Does that make sense? So that's possible. I mean, speaking as an economist, I, I struggle to see kind of where the market failure is here. Because, so if you think of kind of the elite US universities, If they have money for these programs, 
there must be a donor somewhere who is looking at this and saying, is this worth it? And on the other side, so if it's, so if the funding is not coming from donors and if it's co coming from the students, right. Then kind of there, there needs to be a failure somewhere where somebody's willing to pay a lot of money for a degree that is not particularly going to help. Well, but then in that, in, in that regard, like, let's transition to like a model like Canada where schooling is paid for by the state to a large degree. I think that that allows for people to explore things that might not make them money later, but for those four years, they get to do it and it doesn't cost anything in a way to anyone because then they graduate and the whole society understands he studied photography, but he'll work fine as a market analyst because we can train him here, right? Um, but in America, that's not so clear. Like we think there's, it's part of the American dream that like dreams can build money and some dreams aren't financially viable, unfortunately. I think that's part of it, don't you? Like, No, I think that's part of it, but kind of... I don't know, they're kind of like to, to the word that you used a while ago, there has to be a racket somewhere and there, there has to be someone somewhere who knows that they're basically ripping people off in, and, and continuing to do this. In order, in order for this dynamic to, to, to be sustainable. Because kind of in a perfectly kind of, if everybody responded to incentives and we all had perfect information, which we obviously don't, kind of there's, a, you should be able to, to see, okay, if this photography program is, is right there, it costs this much money, but what, what are the results that they have given over the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years? Do they actually create photographers or does everybody end up in, in kind of a low, relatively low paid administrative job somewhere uh, that is not your dream? And, and, and so if, if everybody's kind of rational, then, then they should look at that and say, hey, I'm not gonna pay this much money. So, so maybe, I guess I'm trying to find kind of the market failure or, or, or the friction here. And, and part of it might be what you say, which is kind of this, this cultural idea that you need to follow your dreams no matter what, mm, maybe. Uh, and, and, and that creates the space for these universities to, or, or, or these institutions to kind of essentially rip off people. Maybe I'm not, uh, maybe, maybe that cultural aspect is important. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I mean, I didn't expect for us to go down this road, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think the cultural aspect is part of it, but also 18 year old kids, you know, like it, it's like the credit card problem. Like you're offered a credit card for a limited time. You're offered 0% down on some shit that you don't need. And you're like, well, you know, I can justify that purchase uh, and it'll really make me happy. Like this would, or, or even put off the, the even worse, it has huge APR and you're putting it off for later. It's like, oh, I can totally swing these payments. Plus in 50, in five years, I will be a CEO of Google. So uh, no worries. You know, like 18 year olds think that way. Like we, when, when you and I were 18, we thought by, by 30, we were going to be like killing it in whatever we're doing. And we're, we're not doing bad. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to say, but you know, like, uh, our perceptions are different when we're 18 and no, I think, right. So, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to see your side of the argument because I think coming, coming at this as an economist, I would have started enumerating kind of documented behavioral biases, like a lot of what, what you've already said. So lack of 
you don't have perfect information, you will, you think you overestimate how you're going to do relative to the median or the or the or the average, et cetera. And I think, but I think there's also potentially a question of, of how ingrained is this from in, into you by a culture where in every single movie that you look at it on Netflix, the protagonist braces through their troubles and they succeed at the end. Uh, so maybe that's that's an important part of why why this is coming up. I don't know. Now I'm just looking into the app, like into possibilities of how we landed here. Because you said like from an ec ec economic point of view, you don't know. There's clearly a racket, but you can't find it. It's, I, I wouldn't say that I can't find it. I, I'd say that it's it's hard to rigorously figure out right. where kind of the economic frictions are. Yes. And, are the, and which are the ones that really matter. Yes. I do think a big one though, and, and we already hit on it with like the, the loans that are kind of predatory. The other part that happened in America when, when these loans became federal, which was not that long ago. I mean, I think that uh, up until like the 80s, you can still find people that could pay for their college really with a second, with a part-time job, right? Within a couple of years. That's kind of a pipe dream now. Like if, if you graduate now from a top school and you incur debt, Let's assume you didn't get any scholarship. You're graduating from with two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars the debt. That's like a significant amount to have in your twenties. So I think part of it is like when the state decided to give these loans out because they're state guaranteed. It also encouraged universities to overreach in a way that they didn't used to. Like this is also something that's hard for you and me to see see through because. Fortunately for us, we went to pretty reputable universities. I mean, you went to UPenn and then Stanford. Like, no shit, those are the cream of the crop in economics. Like, of course. And I went to McGill, which had a pretty great music department. And then I went to CalArts, which even though it's collapsing, has a reputable uh, thing of creatives. But we've, we've always been in touch with like uh, higher end institutions, right? So it's hard for us to see this. But like, I sometimes wonder like, is it responsible for every university in America to offer a PhD in economics? I know, I know that not all of them do, but there's a lot that do. Because in the end, they really can't offer you what Stanford did. So you're creating kind of a pyramid scheme system where like in this pyramid scheme system, people at the higher end institutions are probably going to be the ones that get paid out first from the pyramid scheme, right? And then down trickled until there's nothing. So... Do you think that might be part of the problem, like overtraining, but not at the same level or, you know, even if at the same level, they don't mean the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it, it depends. And, and, and by the way, this is this whole education economics is not really my expertise. My sense is that for a lot of degrees, this isn't a big issue because so in particular for PhDs, you typically get funded. So I can tell you for economics, uh, the, the typical thing is you get funded. And, and if you don't have funding, you typically don't make it past the second year because so, so, so there's a lot of schools that historically had kind of conditional funding in after your second year, if you did well in the first year. Um, the, so where I see more the issue is, is, is again with kind of for-profit, a lot of for-profit institutions that, that potentially give you degrees that are not very useful and then actually charge you money. 
yeah, I don't know. It, it's a it's a difficult issue. But this whole student loan thing is is I I think it's and it, it's been rightly in the news recently uh, because because it is a a big issue for the economy. But some of the proposals out there are controversial, and they're controversial because they're very regressive. Actually, no, oh, tell me about that. That'll be super interesting, actually, because I everyone I know, by the way, the reason I'm asking, I don't know how. What do you think about it? Let me just. Most people I know in the music field are not, they don't have that many friends outside of the music field. It's actually kind of shocking. Um, and we are not the most educated to be talking about certain things that seem good on paper. You know, like if somebody says, let's pardon all student debt, nobody looks at the bottom line because nobody's an expert in the subject, for example. So I, I want to hear like, what are you talking about student debt in the news recently? What do you mean by a lot of the policies that are being talked about seem regressive? Yeah, so, so to a lot of economists, this, this idea that we should do a blanket reduction in student debt for everyone is kind of a crazy idea because a lot of the people who have the most debt are some of the people who are the best educated and have the highest earned income. So for example, people who went to medical school, people who went to law school, they are amongst, so those individuals have the biggest amounts of debt because they did a lot of education and kind of, and, and are in high earning occupations now. Um, so, I mean, some of the proposals that people talk about that I've heard of, it's, it's expanding, for example, this, uh, I forget the name, but anyway, that there these policies that you don't have to repay your student debt until you start earning an income or until you earn above a certain amount of income. Uh, so that would be a lot more progressive, for example. Um, and or, but anyway, I think, so, so what is pretty clear to me is that this blanket, let's just cancel all student debt is, I mean, it's one, very expensive, and two, you're benefiting the people who have the highest capacity to pay that debt the most because a doctor might have I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in student debt, somebody who graduated from college and maybe didn't do a great degree, but owes, I don't know, 60 or $70,000 of student debt. Well, if you cancel all of them, who's gonna, who's gonna earn more? Who's, or who's benefiting more from that policy? Uh, so it's, yeah, it, this is kind of a very contentious issue, but, but I mean, some of the ideas that, that kind of sound good if you, don't really stop and think about who's 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 benefiting and, and who's really paying for this. Uh, it's uh, it it can potentially lead you on onto a wrong track. The feeling, I mean, I have the exact same feeling of what you're talking about. It's really interesting because, like, yeah, a Harvard lawyer graduates with two hundred thousand dollars of debt, assuming he didn't get any scholarship or she. But then the median income for like a Yale or Harvard grad in the law and who passes the bar it, like right out of school is like 150,000 and it's bound to go up within five years to like almost 300,000, which means if they live like a student for an extra five years, they can essentially pay their student debt off. And if you pardon them, then these are the people that then pocket four or 500,000 within a couple of years, um, which can have benefits for the economy. But like you're saying, you're actually creating a second class of, of wealth for people that uh, went into the most competitive fields anyway, which then what's the point as far as fairness of the market? And I mean, that doesn't take away from the fact that education costs are rising exponentially and it 
and they are arguably hard to justify, uh, even for doctors and lawyers and things. Yes, they're super hard to justify. You remember Felipe sent us this thing where it was saying like since the 60s to now, the cost of education and healthcare have like exponentially grown so far beyond inflation that it's not even like understandable how it happened, you know? Um, But I want to go back to one thing about that because the other call that's made a lot in America and you know, we come from a country that has like almost none of this. Like Columbia has one national university, really. And it's actually quite good. Um, but it's not like Europe or Canada where uh, education is nationalized and it, it works quite well. But the part that they don't tell you about Canadian and uh, European education systems is that they're terrifically more brutal. They're so brutal in their admission policy. It might seem like Harvard is brutal in its admission policy because it admits 6%. But Europeans are in some ways more brutal because if like by age 18, you can't prove the basic skills to, for example, enter an engineering program, you're not going to be an engineer. They're like, no, state funds are not going to go to train you to be an engineer. Oh, well, it's my dream. It's like, sorry, you didn't get into the five schools in Germany that teach engineering. No engineer for you. Come back in a year if you want. Take a year on your own. Do whatever you want. But we're not paying to train people from zero. Whereas in America, because there's so much supply, people are allowed to go into things, and maybe that's a good thing, at not the top levels. Does that make sense? So I think one of the caveats, if you're gonna, if the state is going to pay for things, or if we co- collectively with our taxes are going to uh, pay for an absolution of student debt, I've always thought that one of the demands has to be that then people aren't allowed to train in whatever they want unless they prove a certain competence in, in what is needed by age 18 or 20. Yeah, no. So I think how I see this is in, is in two ways. One, my sense is in Europe, in continental Europe in particular. So the UK is, I think, a little bit more similar to the US in this regard. Uh, in continental Europe, my sense is a lot fewer people actually go to four-year colleges or kind of formal colleges. And, and kind of the alternative is, it's not like if you didn't go to college, people will look down upon you. And there's also trade schools. So like- And yeah, exactly. There's trade schools, there's vocational training, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and maybe like the part of it is that America has mixed the two. So like uh, vocational careers are mixed into the university in America, where in Europe, vocational and trade schools are separate from academic programs. Yeah, no, but kind of in the US and the UK, for many decades, there's been this idea that we should get more people to go to four-year colleges and get more people. And, and, and so basically the share of people with a four-year college degree has been going up for decades. Mm-hmm. It's not clear that this expansion has had, a, has had the, as much value added as people think. And, and kind of part of the reason is, is so a lot of people justify this based on based on the fact that college graduates are earn much, have historically earned much better than the non-college graduates. What's not, so the, the problem is, is it's, this is what we call in economics an identification problem. You don't know what is the cause and what is the effect. So it could be that going to college makes you more prepared for the labor force, or it could be that the people who have a good high school education and have better innate skills go to college and then do better 
Um, and so they can basically take advantage of that college and because they already have the skills. So it, it, so there's a confluence of these two things. And it, it could be that we are just creating schools that don't have a lot of value added or that really in order to take, to, to take advantage of that value added, you have to have skills that you are before going to college. And so this expansion isn't so useful potentially. Um, and, and kind of coupled with this, the other thing in America, and, and, and so here I'm piggybacking on what I know a little bit about education economics, is that in the US, there's really a market for higher education, which there isn't in other advanced economies. In the sense of, in the US, there's a lot of diversity of the sort of sorts of institutions that you can go to for to get a higher education. You can go to your community college, you can go to state universities, you can go to your elite state universities, you can go to uh, private for profit, private nonprofit, and and they kind of and they really do compete for students. So so we all complain, or or, or we think that high schoolers are too stressed nowadays with their college applications. But this is basically what universities want. They 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 want the students to compete amongst themselves to get in, to or or I should say that differently. The universities are competing amongst themselves for the best students. And it's in a real arms race that is having. We won't talk about this here, but it's having horrendous effects on on uh, social developmental health of 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 high schoolers. So, so like a lot of the hysteria we see with like everything politically correct now is actually sort of not these kids' fault. They've been overprotected, and because their schedules are so overworked in order to reach that arms race of getting into Stanford, which used to be easier twenty years ago. And way easier 40 years ago, you know, so uh, it all has a horrible effect. But I want to go back like to what you said, like in America, education means something a little different than it does in other parts of the world. I have a feeling like education, like you said, is like an aspirational expense in America, which it's not in other parts of the world. Like, like you said, I think in Europe, nobody looks down upon the dude who whose family has been a owner of a vineyard for 150 years or 200 years. And it's like, what are you going to do with your life? I'm going to be a vintner, vintner, like my dad and granddad and great granddad, or I make shoes. That's what my family does. Or, you know, if they want to be artists, a lot of them don't go to school. Like in Europe, art and music are not part of the university. Typically their uh, conservatory system is outside of the university with no academic rigor of the same nature. But here it's like totally vocational. I mean, it's still said. I mean, you still see it a lot in our era. Like, oh, I'm the first graduate in my family. And it's like, okay. And that's cool if it leads somewhere. But oftentimes it doesn't. It's just it's somebody who's in debt and not particularly well prepared to weather the market. I'm, I'm, I'm curious in what you just said, too. Like, we don't know whether it's the chicken or the egg, you know. And I wonder if you think about England, for example, or America up until 1960 or 50, there were more straight up caste systems. And we see this in Colombia. Like we have friends from our high school that are fucking idiots that are going to be fine, even if they didn't go to school. Why? Because they have access to a job where they'll get trained or they have access to a company that their family built. Um, like, I don't, I'm not sure it's the college education always that makes you better prepared for, it's like you said, it's just, People with money have traditionally had access to higher education, but it's not necessarily that higher education made them competitive in the market. 
which is a really sad thing to discover. Yeah, absolutely. And, but I mean, I do want to, I do want to kind of give you the, the flip side, the on the other of end, course. Uh, which is the U.S. is, I think, as a society, a lot more entrepreneurial than a lot of other places. And, and part of, I think, part of its success in the 20th century has come from this entrepreneurial spirit. I can go to California, I don't know, in the 1930s after the Dust Bowl and start something up there and uh, yeah, yeah. And kind of more recently, so, so I, and I think the spirit of Silicon Valley 20 or 30 years ago was very much like this. Nowadays, uh, obviously it's, it's more dominated by, by these kind of big monolithic tech firms. But if you, and, and so I think that that is, a kind of goes hand in hand with what we've been talking about. And by the way, in, I think part of what's going on in China right now is a lot of this entrepreneurial spirit as well, which in, I don't know, I talked to some people who grew up in Europe and, and they sort of tell me, yeah, no, a lot of the people in the town that I grew up with have been there for ages. They don't particularly care about getting up, getting out of that town. They just take over their parents' small business and, and kind of leave it at that. And and obviously it's not all like that, but it, it that is a part of the contracts contrast. And 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 I think that is a lot of what helped the US kind of be economically strong during much of the 20th century. And 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 is it you could say that it's it's sort of gone wrong with all these issues that we've talked about, but it but these are values that are that I think if they endure should bode well for for the U.S. going forward. Yeah, and I, I, my only worry with the U.S. is that, and I think I've told you this before, but I have no economic background to say it. Like I, I don't. You would have to study it. I, I've always felt that America has been living in the mythology of perpetual growth, that um, nations grow, and then they either stabilize, or you start, you start essentially betting on more growth by compromising something else in your population. So like the case of China is a great example because they're sort of young as an, as an economic power. Like there's still a lot of potential. Obviously there's a lot of things that are completely fucked up about China in their treatment of human beings, which is the same in American 1910, right? I mean, child labor, all that kind of crap. China's the same. Uh, I mean, the recent disappearance of of the owner of Alibaba should be like pretty scary to any Chinese yeah. entrepreneur. Sorry, appeared recently. Yes, <laughs> yes. After who who knows where he was? Let's not ask questions. But um, I I think what scares me about the way America is going, like you said, there's something clearly that is not the same. Is a lot of economic the economic power of America after the Second World War was like. First of all, the vacuum left by the amount of debt, which means that there was a, a space for younger people to come in to industries and young people take lots of risks. Uh, the decentralization of cities, so like the birth of the suburb, which meant people, meant people could access uh, living standards that they didn't used to have up until 1950, you know, like running water, <laughs> stuff like that. And then all these booming industries because of a, a reinvigorated workforce doubled by women as well. But at some point 
around the 70s, I would think, the growth couldn't be sustained at that level, especially technologically. Like we, we got to a point where like man had been set to space, that we had cured polio, we had nuclear technologies, like the explosion of technologies from like 1930 to then is insane. And then from the 70s to now, like, yeah, we got the internet, but that was also kind of created in the 70s. And then we have an iPhone. And after the iPhone, we have bigger versions of the iPhone, iPads, you know, smaller versions of the iPad. <laughs> but it's all the same after that. And so I wonder if we've been like, or if the baby boomer generation, which was so accustomed to that amount of growth, has been gambling the futures of Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z by retaining positions of power, which has actually had kind of had a stagnant effect because we have now like hyper trained people severely in debt, not occupying the positions that their grandfathers were occupying at age 30. I mean, perfect example is Joe Biden, not to get political because it's not political, but the presidential candidates for the America for America in the last year were all over 70. And before that, it was the same generation. And before that, it was the same generation, except for Obama is like the one interruption. So like, we've been gambling, like, I feel like baby boomers have been gambling the future stability of a country in order to have perpetual growth, which was bound to be stagnant after the 1970s. That doesn't mean that it was going to decline. This just meant like, the perpetual growth model is kind of killing America, that American ingenuity spirit. Because like, how do you start a company anymore uh, without getting, even in tech, like you said, like the last great boom was tech. And like, how do you go to Silicon Valley now and start the next, like the competition for Twitter when you know you're going to get bought out two months in or crushed, you know? And there's a lot in that, but. Yeah, there's a lot in there. So so, so let me kind of stick to the the economic story, which is kind of what I, I know best, which is. Yeah, Look, I'm more interested in the growth model. Like that's kind of where I'm, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's where I was going. Yeah. Um, basically, if you look at the history of humanity, there was very little sustained growth until maybe the second half of the 18th century. So basically un until the Industrial Revolution, when certain kind of certain countries of the world, so first kind of the uh, United Kingdom, and then, then Europe and, and later the US, Canada, Australia, kind of started growing at a sustained rate at about, so 3% per year in terms of productivity growth. So when you add in, when you add in population growth, because so when you, have, when you become richer, uh, you're able to sustain kind of population growth, then that means that GDP grows kind of at, at a constant rate, a little bit higher than 3%. And hand in hand with that also, the quality of life in America was getting ridiculous from like 1900 to 1950, right? But exactly. So, yeah. so what is happening What is happening there is your productivity is getting higher. Uh, you're able to sustain population growth, but as long as that population is growing by, is growing by less than, than productivity, then GDP per worker, which is a kind of a very gross measure of how much stuff we have per person, how rich we are, basically grew at a sustained level, uh, has been growing basically at a sustained level since then. You're absolutely right that something happened in the 70s and 80s with the computer boom where measured productivity, so the productivity that we measure in the statistics of how much did the economy invest, how much stuff did we make, and how many people were working, 
that kind of stagnates in the 70s. Then in the 90s, with the, with the dot-com boom, it accelerates again. But kind of what is, and I, and I saw a picture of this on Twitter this week. What's kind of amazing is since the financial crisis of 2008, measured productivity has been basically stagnant. Or yeah, very little, uh, very little growth. Maybe so, so if it used to be 3% per year, it, it's now like half a percent or 1% in, in the past 12 to 15 years. What is it? And, and it, it's not obvious what is going on here. So one of the hypotheses is this is all measurement. Mm-hmm. And, and how is this all measurement? Well, the thing is, we, before the 1970s, a lot of the investments that the economy used to make were in physical capital, right? So we make new factories, we make new machines that- That make, make something physical, right? Since then, yeah. Since then, a lot of, there's, exactly, there's been a, a reallocation of the economy towards services, one, with, where kind of the quality and the quantity are harder to disentangle. So that includes, uh, just to clarify, that includes things like Facebook or Instagram that don't make anything, but they provide a service and but, I derive mean, value from it. That's what you mean? You so, so yes, that's in there, but, but we don't even have to go that far away. Okay the extreme uh, so financial services for example ah. uh, or even kind of your ice cream corner shop in in some hip corner of la it, yeah the, the actual ice cream that they sell you is not worth the amount of money that they you know charge. you mean you mean the goat the goat cheese uh the goat cheese olive ice cream it's not supposed to cost eight dollars yeah, I mean, part of what they're charging you for is the experience and kind of the, the fact that they're providing kind of this, this, this kind of nice service for you. And so, the, so there's, yeah, the economy has moved to, towards services where kind of quality and quantity are hard to think about. And the other thing is a lot of the investments have become actually intangible. And so kind of at one extreme are the tech companies where, I mean, sure, they have buildings, but their most valuable pieces of of their, their most valuable productive inputs are kind of their coders' knowledge, so, so the human capital embedded in their employees, and kind of the proprietary stuff like the algorithms that they use to sell ads and, and that sort of stuff. So that, that's kind of an extreme. Or, I mean, to, to be less extreme, uh, so I know your brother's a lawyer, lawyers are kind of intangible capital at 100%. It's there, it's kind of much more embedded in, 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 in the actual worker, so it's human capital. Uh, and so what's, what's the problem with this? For the productivity statistics, the way we measure these, these, these intangible investments, a lot of them get subtracted from GDP. So research and development expenses, for example, are, are, are subtracted from GDP, basically. And, and, and so there's, there's a ton of economics literature trying to figure out, okay, if we don't subtract this thing, if we actually figure out that these are actual investments, when you, for example, if you're a company and you buy software, that's usually expensed out. So it's not counted as an investment. If you, if you add it back, kind of how much more productivity we get. And we get a little bit. The, the other thing is, is the, the idea that ideas are getting harder to find. And so, so what we talked about for Moore's law, Every kind of every year, we need more scientists working on computer chips in order to maintain the rate at which uh, computer chips power doubles every month or so. 
And so that, that might also be it. It might also be that kind of our society has shifted its preferences towards trying to become a little bit more regulated, uh, protecting. And so here, maybe I'm gonna get into the, the whole generational shifts, but the shifting a lot more resources to caring for the elderly, uh, for paying out pensions and things like that. And so maybe that kind of sort of puts sand in the wheels that make it harder for the rest of the economy. to Well, not so, just that, because we're in a country where like, yeah, you dump all these resources into the elderly, but then you also don't demand that people step down at a reasonable age to open a generational shift. Yeah, so that I feel less less comfortable talking about because I yeah I I I, I also don't know that these people are totally unqualified. No, no, no. Of course not. I I'm more my question. So there's two things in there that I think. So you, you talked about that slowing down in the 70s and 80s and then kind of a boom in the 90s. And part of it was tech, but I think the other part of it was, um, you know, the Berlin Wall fell and essentially, <laughs> and this is a little political, but essentially Bill Clinton realized that Democrats were never going to win an election again. So he created a second Republican Party, which is what I mean by that is they went from being a party of kind of like the labor party in England of the people to being a party of liberal people with money. So that's when they start taking in uh, large chunks of money from special interests that I'm not going to say anything about that as far as like what that generates politically. But the thing that it generated is I have a feeling, but you'll be able to confirm this more. Do you feel like that opening up of the American market to the global community? So where you're saying, well, What's the difference between helping a guy in Detroit from opening a factory in Mexico? We're still, you know, that that kind of Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton horseshit about the tide lifts all, you know, the tide, a tide lifts all boats where it's like, well, if Mexico gets richer, America gets richer, too. And it turned out, I don't know if we like that's what I mean, that we kept gambling to generate this version of growth that wasn't actually supporting the general American people, for example. So like, whereas in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the growth was actually making a substantially higher middle class that was earning much more than they would have in the 1920s when they were poor. After that, you're shipping most of that growth elsewhere. You know, that's part of how China has become so powerful is that America shipped everything to China. So essentially the Chinese, very the very Chinese poor, which is the equivalent of the American 1910 person, is now living a middle class on American ideas, which generates a kind of sense of growth in America because money expands, but it continues that stagnation of talent as far as America. Yeah, I don't know. So, so I think I see two things there. One is I, I view positively this globalized, I'm, I'm kind of a desperate globalist, uh, this globalized world where 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 basically we we opened up to trade uh technology diffused around the world and i think so the the first order thing is that improved the stand, standards of living for millions or billions of people in the world and 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 that is great so i think the so what's happened in advanced economies and, and, and probably most acutely in the u.s is and this goes hand in hand with the rise of intangible capital and, and, and these kind of specialized services is that the economy became a lot more winner take all or winner take most. And, 
And that's kind of, and so that's something that we're grappling with now because I, I think it wasn't obvious. It wasn't so obvious in the news. So we didn't know that the internet, which was supposed to be a super open thing where everybody can, with low entry costs and things like that, that basically that a few firms would, for example, take, be able to get this huge economies of scope and huge economies of scale uh, just because they, they started off with a particularly good algorithm. So for example, in the case of Google, but kind of the same dynamic, so we see it in the tech firms, but we see it elsewhere too, because if you think about yourself, if you were a super neurosurgeon or heart surgeon in the 1960s or 1970s, okay, you worked at the Mayo Clinic. But nowadays that you have technology, you, you can do much, much better because you can connect with people around the world and you can, and, and so you can get patients from around the world and, and travel and blah, 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 blah. so, and I, and I think that has also benefited the world because your, your great neurosurgeon can now help a lot more people. But the thing is, it's, it's, it's a winner take most dynamic that I think wasn't obvious 30 or 40 years ago. And, and that basically laws and regulations aren't particularly well equipped to handle. Yeah, and it, it, <clears throat> it also promotes itself in that way. So even if you don't feel personally that way, you know, like if, if you're not a greedy, because I don't believe in this whole thing, like people are so greedy. It's like, no, it's just the markets force people people's hands in ways that are kind of unacceptable. You brought up my brother being a lawyer, like in the nineties, most law firms had multiple partners and each partner probably made what a senior associate makes nowadays. So, you know, you're talking about most partners were making 600,000 to a million dollars if they were like killer. And now it's like, well, what if we only have five partners and each of us take home $3 million? It's like, okay, well, let's do that. And so it's it's like you're saying, like you have fewer people, like, and on the other hand, most associates are making what partners used to make. So it it did lift everyone's salaries, but it it restricts the amount of talent that you can put in positions of power and decision, which kind of hits to that point that that you said too, like part of the stagnation in America with its uh, collective imagination for pr production so to speak, you know, like, what, what are we going to build next? I wonder how much of it is that we promote, uh, well, first of all, there's not enough spaces in leadership because of that winner-take-all mentality for everyone that is capable enough to be in those positions of leadership to occupy. But the other part is that you make some of the most smart people uh, favor careers for economic reasons that aren't necessarily the the ones that are creative. So like if you're Jonas Salk, but you're born now, do you go on to develop the polio vaccine or do you become a hedge fund manager? Because like you're smart and you want to make money. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I mean, you're kind of assuming that, that, that making the polio vaccine doesn't make money. Well, then for him, he made it public domain. <laughs> but no, what I'm trying to say is that, is that people who are kind of top researchers now, are also doing great. They're they're part of this winner take most, and and like so so the people behind the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, so sort of this German couple, mm -hmm. uh, apparently they're billionaires already because they they had already de devised this technology. So so before the 
the the COVID vaccine. They they also had created this this super this super successful company based on biotechnology, and, and they were researchers. I don't think we had that forty or fifty years ago. Uh, and and again, kind of this this world of intangible capital is very winner take most, and 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 you see this kind of everywhere. So so actually, there's there's a there's a paper in economics that I think is is very very interesting, which is about how the how a large share of the top one percent in the U.S. is 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 the top one percent of income is actually earned through uh, is is actually coming through business income from things like professional services, lawyers, doctors, things like that. So it's it's and it's a lot a lot less of it is kind of these rents on wealth that 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 people really that. This, this whole capital in the 21st century thing. It's, it's a lot more human capital in the 21st century than we think. I think that that's like a positive element of it too, that uh, in a fucked up way that like, and we go back to what we were saying at the beginning, like people's perceptions, for example, of student debt forgiveness uh, can have terrible effects. Likewise, people's perceptions of life in the 21st century can make them feel that they're living in a particularly unfair time. But like part of the reason is that, like you said, even in the nineties, like since the nineties around the world, people's wealth is exploding on a basic level. You know what I mean? Like there's parts of Colombia when we were kids that it was like going back to the middle ages, that it's not like it's magnificent now, but there might be some running water. You know, and so it's like we're living in a time where, like, even though we think we're poor in America, we're still probably richer than some of the richest people in the 1920s. Here's a statistic that, that'll freak you out. If mm -hmm. Puerto Rico was an independent country, it would be the richest country of Latin America. That's insane. If it were a U.S. state, it would be the poorest U.S. state by GDP. Yeah, it's yeah but, but even even without, like, money like let's just think about like services and goods and a quality of life like if if i resurrect uh let's think of a good one that fucker the vanderbilt who built uh the the biltmore estate do you know about this it was the largest private house in america in the 1910s 20s and it had the things that at the time was like what the fuck you know he had a heated pool and bathrooms in every room with hot water that was like the thing and heated floors in some of his rooms that's like standard in almost every new middle class home you know especially the hot water has been standard from so what i'm trying to say too is like yes we see the hyper rich but also like the quality of life of the average median american is insane compared to what their great-grandparents would have had technologically and whatever yeah, I mean, I think so there are controversies there because it's not, so health standards, for example, in the past 20 years, I think have been stagnant or mm. rest. Uh, and so, so that, is, that is a big issue. So, right, so, isn't mortality rate in America getting uh, lower? Yeah, so I think overall mortality is really affected, for example, by the opioids yeah. right. epidemic. But, but if, if we look at something more basic, like, uh, like in like maternal mortality or infant mortality, 
Western Europe keeps going up and the U.S. is kind of stagnant or maybe even regressing. Which is a little scary. It is. Um, and so I think part of, I mean, part of the discontents in American society in, in the past 10, 20 years, a lot of them have to do with the fact that, that sure, kind of the average is stagnating, but the winner take most part of the economy, they are not. And, and, and so this, and this is creating some of these culture wars that, 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 that have arisen, but are, I think, less pronounced in other countries where, where things have evolved more equally. The flip side of that is, 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 again, the U.S. has been able to retain its kind of its technological and, and economic position above, say, in comparison with Western Europe, partly because it, it has fostered this winner-take-most dynamic. Well, that's where we go back a little bit to what we were talking about that scares me about like uh, America reaching kind of a stagnant growth period, 70s, 80s, then 90s, tech boom, whatever. But I do still believe like there's something that could explode for them. So I go back to like quality of life. Americans have gotten used to quality of life getting better and now it's stagnant. And now they're also seeing that the productive jobs and productive growth is not even just not allowed to stay stagnant, but is not even favored to be stagnant. So like if you start a small company, like let's say I start a gym, I still have to see it on a perpetual growth model. Like it's not encouraged that I have a business that's responsible, not in America. It, it wouldn't survive. You know what I mean? Like we, Felipe, you and I talk about this a lot, like airlines, for example. For years, they've been playing gambling games and then the pandemic happened and they had no reserves. And I was like, well, how can a business that makes this much a year have no reserves? Well, because they're not encouraged to. They're encouraged to like gamble for more growth. And so my, I guess what I'm trying to hit at is like, is there a principle in economics where like a nation is supposed to be happy with its like stagnation because it's still so much wealth a year? Or is that just not how the economy operates ever? So that's that's not really how we think about things. How we think about things is if you can make things better, people will like it and, and you will try to make them better. So what I think part of the reckoning with COVID is going to be that the world, we've just realized that the world is a lot riskier than it used to be. And so, so I saw papers written around the same time as mine uh, in, in kind of April of 2020, arguing that basically if everybody internalizes what we just saw and we realize that every hundred years or so there's an event of this magnitude, mm -hmm. then, then we are going to become more, then basically businesses and people are going to become more cautious and, 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 and so that'll, that'll mean that they invest less, they save more for a rainy day, and the economy at the, end, at the end of the day is smaller. So I think the question is how much of that internalization is, is, is really going to happen? Mm. And because there is a danger, and, and I think airlines are an extreme example of this, where firms, firms and people just, just say, oh, yeah, the risk is there, but who cares? The government is going to bail me out anyway. 
And so maybe as a society, that's what's going to happen. I hope not. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a distinct possibility. Yeah. yeah, I think America for some time has been operating under, I think Gore Vidal is the one that coined this, but he used to say uh, capital socialism for the rich and free market enterprise for the poor, which is like if you acquire debt as a personal thing, it's your personal responsibility. But if you, the airline, gambles, it's up to the people to rescue you. And it's uh, it's an imbalance that it's not practical for society in some ways. But I'm I'm interested in like what you said to me is like, how do you feel about that? Like finding a place where, so architects do this all the time. For example, here in LA, there's a huge ass ditch in the LA river and that river is dry as hell. And there's been people that say, well, can't I build a building here? Turns out that was built by architects for what they call the hundred year flood. Every hundred years, there's an event where it rains a ton and the LA river overflows. So they built it so that Presumably, it won't overflow enough that it will cause damage. Now, it never rains, and we don't see it. But when that thing comes, we're all going to be happy that the architects put it in place that way. Are you? Do you think it's favorable that if we were to find kind of a, a, a less growth but more like prepare, preparedness for eventualities as business people in general? Or is that not desirable? No, I think that is desirable because I think... And, and, and so this kind of goes back to my dissertation. My dissertation is, is about, one of the findings is that basically people underestimate the risk that there is in the world. And so if you're a firm manager, you're always overreacting to whatever the world threw, you at, threw at you this morning. And, and in some sense, that, that is kind of what has happened over the past year. Nobody thought this was going to happen. So there were no stockpiles of PPE there. We had no idea that we need to ask people to, to wear masks. We had no idea that airlines needed cash around, uh, yada, yada, yada. It's, so I, I, think, I, I think it would be, so in economic terms, the desirable thing in order, to map, in order to optimize the use of resources is to recognize the risks and be prepared and basically have a contingency for when they happen. If you ignore them, then you're kind of fucked. Um, and, and, and part of, I think part of what's scary to me as an economist is I see this happening in other dimensions of society, for example, with climate change, where collectively as a world, like let's not even talk about an individual country, we kind of know that the risk is there, but I think collectively we don't internalize how big it is and so we are not preparing for it and we're not doing what we can. God, I try to remember what this, I heard this once regarding climate change and technological growth and, and exactly what you say that we don't, you might've been Steven Pinker talking with Sam Harris at something that they were talking about like, we have such uh, blind faith in humanity and their ability to solve problems that we don't account for true uh, nefarious outcomes. So like we create the atomic bomb and we're like, yeah, but we're, we're never going to use it again. I promise, you know, but then there's that a, po a possibility. What if we did? And it's similar with climate change. It's like, there's this idea that technology will come and save us. 
And it might very well save us because it has in the past. But what if it doesn't? Like, and that's where I think it's it's analogous to like economics in that way in some ways that like we're playing games where we don't account for the real possibilities because we expect that we're different like exceptionalism or and and I think humanity has that hardwired that's why so many people do risky things because we think oh it won't happen to me you know yeah yeah but I mean the flip side of that is is the problem that's going on at the same time is everybody climate change is everybody's problem so it's nobody's problem <laughs> and so there's i mean there should be someone out there who is saying hey if i solve if i solve the problem of how to create energy without burning fossil fuels if i really make Elon Musk here. If, if, if I really make kind of car, electric powered cars, that's, that's going to solve the problem. That, that's responding to the private incentives that there are there. And I think part of the, the issue is that because it's everybody's problem, so it's nobody's problem, is we don't have enough incentives for somebody to try and, and do that and say, I'm going to be the exceptional one. Um, and, and, and so the and that is the sort of place where I think regulation can really help because regulation can can help realign those in, those incentives towards more research for for example green green development and 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 so actually there was an article in the Economist not too recently arguing that the 2020s could be a very positive decade in terms of productivity growth and development because after we've lived through through COVID we realized there's so much stuff kind of that we really, really need and governments will realize that they have the capacity to, to, to foster these advances after, after having lived through this. Yeah. Climate change is one of these areas. But there will be others. And I, I think that Elon Musk is an interesting example because people see him, you know, people really vilify Elon Musk for no, for reasons I don't understand, but the, the, he, to me, models very clearly the past era of hyper-billionaires. So like Rockefeller, Mellon, Carnegie, Vanderbilt. Um, there is a tradition in America of hyper-rich people in like using their financial power to shift uh, facets of society. So in, in the 100 years ago, so if we're talking about Rockefeller, Mellon, um, Carnegie, they were less concerned with the environment because it wasn't a thing that they were thinking about then, but they are the ones responsible for America's education and cultural prowess because they were the ones that invested in universities for them to become competitive with Oxford and Cambridge essentially, and then surpass them, right? And same with the arts. Like before them, arts in America were kind of shit and then they decided to use their personal treasures to put stuff out there. Elon Musk is something like that to me in technology. Like even this this month, he announced like $100 million to whoever can come up with the best carbon capture technology. That's a huge incentive for somebody. That's instantly you'll be one of the richest people on earth if you come up with this. There's a huge incentive. And this is him out of his personal, you know, or Bill Gates with polio in Africa. That's like 
his own thing, but it's pretty positive overall. So I do have like good feelings about 2020 uh, or the 2020s moving forward, you know, like the the decade or the century. But I, I'm not so convinced that governments are going to be the answer here because they're so timid to regulate. It's so easy to buy a politician in every country in the world today. The incentives economically are there, like you said. I mean, I've I've never understood why ExxonMobil doesn't invest in in uh, green technologies. They have the money now. They know that the fucking oil is running out. Why wouldn't they invest in it? Yeah, I mean, I think I I actually don't know that the incentives are that strong. Hmm. In in that example in particular, and 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 kind of in general. So where I think governments can really make a difference is they can really try to channel the incentives towards towards innovating and, and actually improving productivity. So uh, doing the Elon Musk thing, but at a governmental level. Yeah. So subsidizing R and D, uh, creating creating prizes for uh, for kind of people who solve important problems. Yeah. So that's how that's how we invented longitude. In, and and by we I mean I mean somebody in the British government. I think I think the story goes that that they needed to figure out how to invent long, longitude in order to navigate the oceans, and they created a prize for somebody who did to solve that problem. We don't have any of that, and, and so I think the 2020s can go a lot better if we realize that that we can channel our collective efforts in, in the right directions. Yeah, and I. I, I personally, and this is maybe not the right decade to say this, but I think we're wasting tremendous resources in solving social issues that were solving themselves instead of investing that same amount of money into like technological advances, which are much, I mean, like, for example, people think that uh, the death rate in America plummeted in the 50s because of scientific research. Bullshit. It was running water. And like part of that came with technologies for running water that were developed back then and then coupled with medicine. And and if you talk about like what kind of social changes happened as far as like the women's right to vote and everything, it came tied to technology more so than it came tied to people's shifting attitudes in their own home. So I think we're, exp we're expending so many resources, particularly in the last five years in like social changes that I think like you said, climate change seems so far away, but it's um, it's like such an existential crisis that I think it's like any money spent not on that, on incentivizing sol solutions for stuff like that, is money wasted and thrown down a, you know, garbage can essentially. I mean, I think you're right, but I think to the extent that these social, that these social issues, so for example, the fact that there didn't used to be any women doctors and now there's a lot of them basically because people didn't think it was a womanly occupation uh that also has economic consequences and and there are hidden incentives to really kind of basically tap that talent and 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 reallocate it towards where towards best uses so i i i don't know i have a lot of sympathy for 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 these social changes that that are really stemming from barriers that should not be there.
Uh, oh, I'm all for that. Like, especially from a legal point of view, I thought I thought like any. Well, but you know this because my family is like full of lawyers. I think like most advances in society come from litigation. As far as social advances come from litigation, then they come from voodoo. You know, like saying the wrong words doesn't the right words doesn't end racism, but having policies where somebody can sue the state or their company if they get fucked over, that's much more powerful to me. But I digress on that. I'm with you that like these social changes need to happen. I'm just more that we shouldn't be investing millions and millions of dollars on something that's taking care of itself through law and litigation. So, so where I'm not convinced is that it's really taking care of itself. You don't think so? I mean, look, uh, my biggest, my biggest uh, convincing factor of this is gay rights. Like, it took like 200 years to get black people to be recognized in America as a person. And it took uh, about a hundred year battle for women's rights. And then it took like 30 years for gay rights. I'm not saying that these people weren't oppressed for hundreds of years. I'm just saying that's when the battle started and it took about 30 years. Um, and I think that these things get shorter and shorter because it's easier to use the tools that were used in the past from law for your own cause. So I, I'm not saying everything is perfect. I'm just saying these things can take care of themselves. It's easy money, that, a problem that mo private money can fund. Hollywood can fund it. You can have something like Brokeback Mountain had a bigger effect on the way people perceived gay things than like Obama declaring that he was for gay marriage. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. But I digress. Beyond whether we agree or not, I think that the incentives on uh, innovation it's something that I think America has been lacking in every field. I mean, I, I think I don't think innovation is necessarily incentivized, uh, like you said, from things other than financial personal reasons. So like the incentives for you to start your own company in Silicon Valley and create Facebook are pretty huge. But the government isn't helping incentivize that and institutions aren't helping incentivize like uh what do you call that? Innovation technologies or innovation in thinking of how to manage things. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's always an area where we can do more. And to the extent that kind of these path-breaking innovations are getting harder to find, we basically need to redouble our efforts. Mm -hmm. and so, so, so there I, I'm, I'm, I'm also a bit more optimistic because I think, so one thing that the US still really has is is these is the top universities in the world basically so and and actually this is so this was truer 10 years ago in my view than than it is now but but it's still the case that kind of the big the big places where where research is being done and kind of that are pushing the frontiers of knowledge are overwhelmingly in the us and and and, and so that is something that need that need that i think needs to be taken advantage of. Uh, in the sciences math you mean stem basically and also in the humanities uh i would i mean i i'm not an expert on the humanities but but i i'm i'm i would be confident to think that that uh, that you would rather be uh, a french literature expert at stanford or, or harvard than 
than at, at your middle of the road university in Europe. Let's get, let's have this conversation again in 10 years. I don't know. I, my sense right now is that it's still the case. That yes. it's going away. It's still the case. I, the, here, here's where I put my bet. I bet you that the safety of knowledge that students are, the safety of, not knowledge, safety of, hmm, safety from ideas that is being demanded on campuses uh, for, especially in the humanities uh, and arts, is going to have the effect of making those people significantly less competitive than in countries where they're not accepting this kind of thing. So what I mean is, uh, and you see it at Stanford, you see it at Columbia, you see it at Harvard. Um, there's a new student body that can't read Mark Twain. It's like, I can't do it. It's, it's too triggering. I'm not going to do it. Those people are now becoming less competent at American literature than their counterpart at Oxford who is reading it or for that matter, are becoming less competent than at the University of Chicago, where the president has says, we're going to have none of this. Like the curriculum is the curriculum. So right now, yes, you're right. America continues to be the most competitive educational place in the world. I suspect, my guess, is it'll continue to be so in math, science, and technology. I will hedge my bets against America in the humanities and social sciences, starting now. <laughs> No, I think that's possible. And, and, and so I, I actually agree with you that I think we should not avoid difficult conversations because they're difficult. Uh, and, and, and there are many ways of reading Mark Twain and understanding the concept, the context without endorsing or condoning any of the negative stuff that is in it. And, and yeah, I, I, I think you might be right. I, I think you might be right. But I still have, I'm, I'm like you, I, I love this country because I think universities have been, I mean, we come from a country where none of this exists. Like imagine at the University of Los Andes doing original research. Like that's not a thing. You know how little professors make in Colombia? Like we have friends who, like my uncle, my uncle's a lawyer who teaches law out of the kindness of his heart. That's like most of the competent professors in Colombia do it as a side gig and not even for the money, just because it's like, oh, it's what an honor. But uh, it's amazing what America does. Like the fact that the Human Genome Project was born at Princeton. I mean, like, what the hell? Like, that's unheard of in humanity. You know, it's crazy and it's amazing. And that will, I, I suspect that will continue to be true. You're right. Um, so there is, there is something positive there. Um, yeah, even, so in my field, I think it's, it's, it's super clear in that. So, in that Columbia universities are actually pretty well embedded into kind of the core of the economics research profession. And so Los Andes and Rosario mm -hmm. have pretty good research outlets. Yeah. And, and, but I think we, we can still see kind of the, the dominance of, of U.S. institutions and the fact that, for example, they both have pretty big groups of people, Los Andes and, and Rosario, who work on development economics, which makes a lot of sense because of kind of development and, and, so in particular, rural development and, and thinking about how violence affects people's economic conditions is, is a prime thing to study in Colombia. And a lot of people do that. Um, and yet, you know where the... So the, 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 the center of development economics, I would say, is, is kind of 
very much still in the US. So the 2019 Nobel Prize winners, Esther Duflo and, and Abhijit Banerjee are in at MIT. And their research is in India, Africa, uh, I think a little bit less so in Latin America, but I mean, there you absolutely see it. And I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. That's where, and not to get back to this point, but that's where it scares me. That's the one caveat about how what we just discussed, like the difficult conversations and equity issues that are being dealt with in other fields of academia, it scares me that they're going to touch on the uh, STEM fields, including economics, because there is, and I, I mean, maybe you haven't felt it yet. I would be curious. There's a push at least already happening in music through the concept of cultural appropriation that uh, you should deny, for example, somebody might say we should deny the research made about India and Colombia made at MIT because those people could not possibly understand uh, that culture, which I completely I'm against because I'm like, well, whoever can fund the research and whoever can do it is the expert in that field. You know, like I don't care where they're from or, or whatever. It's just whoever does it. Um, I'm afraid that that could infect these fields in a negative way. And I really hope it doesn't because I don't care. I'm all for humanity's advancement. I don't really care where it comes from personally. Uh, no, so I, I'm with you on principle. I, I do think there is nuance and, and, yes. and the best researchers, the best researchers are the ones who, who seek to understand the context of where, where they're working at. And so I think part of the success of these top development economists at MIT is, is, is precisely doing that. But yes. I, I have seen papers where it is fairly evident and I've have people come up to me and tell me, oh yeah, in that paper, this person did not, I mean, they just ran the study and then they had no idea of, of what they were dealing with. Of course. It's, it's very hard. It's, it's actually very hard to tell kind of mm. where the line is. Um, it's also, so actually in development economics, there's, there's, there are ethical dilemmas. So right, so a couple of years before Duflo and, and Banerjee got there, got their Nobel Prize, uh, Angus Deaton did, and he's very critical of the sort of de development economics that they do, where you go somewhere in a developing country, you run a, uh, you run a, uh, you run an experiment on people. So you give, um, I'm gonna give a, a silly example, half, you give two, there are two schools in the village, you give books to one and not to the other sort of thing. And, and the ethics of that are kind of, of those sorts of interventions are, are kind of iffy at some, sometimes. And, and, uh, and, and so, so that is another line that is kind of, kind of fine. Because but the results I, are so important for humanity, Jose. I mean, I, can't, I don't know who the economist was, but I know that there was an economist, an American economist that ran, for example, an experiment in India where they like educated women in one village and they didn't get educated in the other. And the discovery from that was like, essentially the liberation of women is the highest predictor of like birth rates dropping and also economic success of the, of the nation skyrocketing. And, and like, yes, is it kind of fucked up that they for 20 years only educated this one village and not the other, meaning that half of that village had a different uh, economic perspective? Yes, but on the other hand, the result of it is something that then you can bring to every nation and say like you better free your women not out of cultural problems but out of like overpopulation and economic growth 
yeah, no, I think I think you're you're right, and and, and this is kind of going back. I don't know where the line. Is. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't, and so there was a lot of controversy a few months ago about an experiment where I think they shut off the water mains to a part of a shanty town in Kenya, and they didn't shut it off to to, to a different part or something like that. I mean, That's something insane. And this was a huge debate about the ethics, about what they had considered, about whether, and then there were a lot of people who gave their opinions on this and, and, and hadn't, hadn't really read the paper and really, really known the details. Yeah, this, uh, it's still the case that these researchers at, at top US institutions have, have the most resources and, and often, and a lot of the time they have the, the most expertise, but it, there is a line somewhere where you may get into some ethical dilemmas. Academia has always had issues with this. I mean, especially with psychology. I mean, you look at the Nazis started this, but you have Jewish researchers that did this in America, like uh, the obsession of psychiatry with twins, like what if to discover nurture versus nature and everything. Like what if we separate these twins? But, you know, and it's, I think the Academy in general deals with these ethical problems that solve very interesting questions and where do you draw the line? Um, so I don't think economics is alone in this. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I just, I just before we finish, because we should probably finish soon, I, I want to go back to your paper just for the people here that are musicians, because the other part that we sort of didn't hit on as much. Um, so we talked about like uh, the shifting of labor forces to new fields, right? That's one element. But then the other element that I think is interesting in what you were saying is like, and we've we've talked about a lot, is there's a second option, which is like, if you can innovate your own industry, then you get to stay there. It's That's sort of how I read it. And I don't think that there's much uh, talk about that in the arts, even though we're supposed to be like innovators and creative people, that's been completely taken out of people now in the 21st century. But like... I see a lot of people that are just like, well, when does this come back? It's like, guess what? It's probably not going to come back. But you now have time to figure out something new in your field as opposed to going and bagging groceries. And very few people are doing it. Uh, do you also, is that also part of like the economic shift that's going to happen that people in their own field to survive end up findings, finding completely revamped ways of doing what they do i mean we kind of hit upon this with like streaming and whatnot but um how how prevalent do you think that will be as opposed to people leaving their industry to join a different one so i think that's going to be the predominant thing oh really so you think there's going to be more people innovating within their fields of study than than exiting their fields of study i think that's going to be the predominant thing oh. that's the positive new ways new ways of doing stuff new ways of doing stuff that kind of bypass some of the issues that have come up during the covid recession and i'm going to give you a silly example to begin with but i've been to maybe two restaurants over the past six months but kind of walking around mexico city where i live nowadays no restaurant has paper made. Every restaurant has a QR code on the table and you look at the, at the menu, menu on your phone. That is never going back. That is never going back. Nobody's going to be like, oh, give me my paper. Uh, and, and 
And so I think the same thing is, is going to happen in lots of fields. So actually going to kind of, so, so from anecdote to data, the, the US census started publishing in 2020 data on how many new businesses have been formed each week and, 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 and also published some historical data. And kind of one of the results of our paper is precisely that, okay, business formation kind of drops precipitously in like March and April. And then through the summer, it surges to like 200% of what it was in 2019. And so there's a question of how much job creation there is here, but I think what the underlying thing, what's going on is people are figuring out new ways of how to do things. And so maybe, and I think a lot of this has to do with kind of creative personal occupations, not unlike the arts, where people decide that, okay, so now I can't be part of an orchestra, but maybe I can set up something, set up my own, set up my own small business and, and, and do it differently. So I think it, this is more clearly seen in, for example, with personal trainers who then kind of incorporate and, and become, and, and then they're no longer the employee of a gym, they're, they're doing their own, their own independent thing. But I think the, a similar dynamic can, can happen in things like the arts. Maybe you can tell me kind of what sorts of ideas people can, can, can get into. I'm not so sure what sort of ideas, because that, that part is the hard part, right? That's the part like, uh, I'm not sure what the solution here is, but what I do know, and it's something you said, for example, the menu thing, I don't think people that go through a conservatory system or through art school are taught that, which is something venture capitalists do or, or, or people working in innovative fields like that. They, you need to recognize that your own field is rotten. So like, I think part of the problem with musicians and, and artists is that we've become so accustomed to like, you know, what in, como in Colombia, pedir cacao, like, you know, like, Everything has to be handed to you. Like I won that job in the orchestra and now, I'm, now I have a job. This is what I do. I show up, I do it. Or what do you do? Oh, I teach. I teach all day. That's what I do. And we accept the rot of things that we find unacceptable. Like, oh, those hours are bad. Oh, nobody actually likes doing A, B, or C. And we still do it. I What I get from this thing, I don't know what the ideas are that get people out of this. But what I do know is it starts with recognizing the parts of your industry that are unacceptable to you. That it's like, oh, if only I didn't have to do A, B, and how do I go from A to B? You know? Or if only the concert goer could A, they would get a more fulfilling experience. So how do I do that for them? You know, because I think there's too much right now saying, how do I build my own thing that failed? It would be like right now trying to start an airline and saying, you know what, I'm going to model it after Delta. You know, like it's <laughs> that's kind of like wh where we are in the arts right now, which is so infuriating that most people are not trying to find solutions. They're just kind of saying like, well, when that goes bankrupt, we'll repeat that model. It's like, well, that's insane. Like it's a huge opportunity right now to shift the entire model. Uh, and I don't have the ideas necessarily, but I do think that it starts with seeing the things that don't work. Um, and, and we have many. Than, I mean, more than, more than the things that didn't used to work, the things that are probably not going to work anymore. Yes. I mean, one of them, you, you talked about tours. Like, I think if I'm Bruno Mars, uh, 
I would probably still tour to New York, LA, San Francisco, the big cities. But am I going to make a stop even in a smaller city like Philly? Or am I going to hold the concert in Madison Square Garden and sell live streams? Why not? You know, it's a huge source of revenue. The artists are less tired. So like whoever starts figuring out these kind of, how do you stream better? How do you, and of course, most of us aren't good at coding. Find a friend. They're unemployed too. You know, find audio engineers. Uh, pair up with people. I think we need more people that are entrepreneurial in finding their own uh, path for, you know, things that might be a problem now. Yeah, no, I, I mean, so if I, I think that's what's going to happen to the rest of the, the economy. And it, it sh there's no reason why it should be any different in, in the arts and entertainment world. Uh, maybe, so maybe, maybe you guys are, are, it's less easy for you to think of new ways of doing things, but I, I think that's the way to go. And because, and yeah, because that, that's what's happening. It's not, so Walmart is, is increasing their, their footprint in, in delivery. They're not, they're not saying, oh, we're going to shut down all the stores. They're, they're figuring out, okay, where's the opportunity and what do I know that I can do? And I, I think that's going to be the predominant thing. And, and, and the economic recovery, so in your industry, but kind of more broadly, is, is going, I think is going to be highly dependent on how well people adapt to and, and reallocate towards, towards the stuff that is more promising now that we know what we want. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also in the arts, like I think it, it requires a reevaluation of if what you're doing is worth selling. Because like I was saying to you, like I think a lot of us in, especially in classical music, have become so accustomed to like uh, grants and uh, private patronage and with no questions asked. It's like, how many people came to that concert that for that concert hall that seats 3,000 people? 500 that's okay honey that's fine here's another million dollars and those people are not necessarily going to keep donating for this stuff so it, it, we need to start reevaluating like our own value and our own audience building i think that's a huge part of it and thankfully technologies are are what they are i mean it's pretty incredible figuring out new ways to harness the technology mm -hmm. i think it's going to be super useful i mean the streaming for People like Bruno Mars is, is kind of a very obvious one, but there must be others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you, Jose. You're welcome. This was nice. We'll do another one when the economy, when the economy has recuperated. <laughs> Someday. Someday. <laughs> Dude, again, I'm going to stop recording.